You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. My my spiritual path has taught me that I needed to pass through all of these different experiences in my life Um, as a professional musician, as a a touring artist, a songwriter, a father. And, you know, I, I have the blessing and the opportunity to integrate these in my work in service of other people. So you better believe that I will pull out any tool in the toolbox at any moment in order to help people take the medicine. That was KC Carter, meditation teacher, executive coach, and author of Permission to Glow. He joins me today to discuss the four permissions that will help us live a more full life and be great leaders. Two of these four permissions are sneakily radical, and they're not the ones you might expect. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Casey, thanks so much for joining me today. I am excited to dive into this conversation. As you know, I have been um, pushing, coaxing, nudging the four permissions for quite a while now. So yeah. to see them in the world, in the book, and be able to read them and turn pages and mm. have ahas and epiphanies has been such a delight. And I'm super pumped and proud of you. So one, great job on doing the work. Second, thanks for joining me today. Oh my God. Well, it's it's such a total blessing to be with you. And um I know Angela's not here, but I, I feel like she's part of this conversation too, because I played you that song I wrote about the four permissions when we were heading into Costa Rica last year at my retreat. And then you coached my ass off and and you say nudge and whatever, but it, it's more like Charlie sitting on your chest to get you to do something like, like this needs to exist. And I was like, oh crap, what does that mean? But here we are, they exist. So yeah, let's have the conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're messing up now, all the folks out there considering me, you know, as a coach, you're like, I don't know if I want a guy sitting on my chest, but you know, I'll take it. <laughs> no, well, I, I'm a coach. What we call that in the biz is like, how high of a gradient do you want? And I think you and I have an open door to work as at high of a gradient as needed. Yeah. And so when I joke and say sit on my chest, I mean, we, 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 we work with each other at a high gradient and that's been just another blessing in my life with you. Yeah. Um, yeah, we have that relationship where it's like, Casey, stop screwing around, get it done. Right. And you're like, damn it. <laughs> I know, right. Um, I did not want to hear that today, Gilkey. Um, but here we are. Yeah, here we are. And it's a victory lap of sorts. It's a, a victory lap of sorts indeed. Um, so here's something I wanted to start with because um, you have a way of showing up in extremely mercurial ways across communities. And, you know, there have been plenty of times where I've talked about people, especially people who are in the good life community, right? Where I'm like, oh, yeah, Casey's writing this great book on spiritual leadership. You got to wait for it. And they're like, unicorn guy. (laughs) And I'm like, unicorn guy, because they know of you from that sort of perspective. And so um, really where I wanted to start about is the multitude that is Casey and how that showed up in writing this book. Oh, thanks. You know, it's uh, what, what you're referring to at Camp Good Life Project was, and I realized that there was a problem with my brand. It might be fragmented when, 
you know, I'm emceeing, I'm wearing unicorn yoga pants or whatever, and really just doing this full self-expression thing, what I call permission to glow in the dark. And then giving people the first permission, permission to chill as a meditation teacher. So I'd be teaching meditation the next morning and they'd be like, man, your brother is crazy. He's like out of his mind. I'm like, my older brother? Because he's not here. And they're talking about me in unicorn pants from the day before. They didn't know it's the same person, right? And, you know, what, what I realized in those you know, many years of doing that was that the humor and the performative aspect, like that rock and roll kind of fun shenanigans thing, that is the pattern interrupt I use to get people to take the spiritual medicine. And I have to use it with myself, truly. Um, It's not limited to other people. So in terms of producing the book, it was an incredibly deep uh, kind of arduous task as, as any book is, but to even perceive these permissions at the level that I needed to get to in my own awareness to, to articulate them, so many different drafts, so many different tr- like attempts at heightened states to, to perceive them. And, you know, so I have to make that process fun because otherwise it's a lot of tears and a lot of uh, no way I can do this. Um, and it's really confronting because like literally my survival mechanism is like, who's this guy from the suburbs of Ohio to be a spiritual teacher for anyone, you know? Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it, I'm always in process. It's always confronting. And, but, but the, the very real joy uh, in the discovery of it, I hope comes through in the writing. Yeah, I understand that. And, and where I, why I wanted to pull that out is especially for those people who have a brand or calling or business around, especially nonfiction, right? Yeah. There is this um, pressure, maybe a belief that you've got to show up sort of one way all the time. Yeah. Right. But we are human beings that contain multitudes. Right. And, you know, sometimes people will ask me like, so you're a philosopher and you're an army officer and you're an entrepreneur. And it's like, I realize that seems incompatible to you. Right. But it feels like just different aspects of myself and they're all harmonious in a way. Right. Um, And so that's one of the things that as, as I've really, um, been in partnership with you over the last decade or so. That's one of the things I love about you is like, that is that multitude and you could be unicorn, unicorn pants guy. Right. Um, and then do this. I will have to say there are times where I'm listening on insight timer and you come up and I'm like, um, I can't get unicorn pants guy out of my head today. So I'm going to have to put that one aside for the day. Right. Yeah, right. And sometimes I can do it and sometimes, but that's beautiful because it shows, um, you know, I think what every author learns, especially nonfiction authors doing the type of personal development, spiritual personal um, development that you're doing is all parts of you have to show up for this to work. Yeah. I mean, I, what, what came up for me when you shared that, I mean, those were all the questions I had for you when you're on my podcast is how do you reconcile being a philosopher and a warrior, you know, and, and, but, but it, anybody who knows you and your work knows that it makes perfect sense. And I, I think of the law of accumulation that we are, so much more than all that we've ever lived. And, and we're lucky if we're able to integrate any of that, let alone all of it, you know? 
And um, you've pointed out to me at different times that you, you couldn't think of another person who had written theme songs for the event that they emcee. And I, I love doing that stuff. Like I'll write songs for my retreats. I'll write, you know, I've been writing songs and taking them into corporate events, which is about the most uncomfortable thing I could ever imagine. Because I know when I have my guitar in the room, if I'm leading a corporate event, that they're wondering if I'm going to play either Puff the Magic Dragon, you know, or literally Kumbaya, you know, like they what is this guitar doing here? But, but that instrument kills cynicism. So I, I, I'm obligated to do it, you know? And, um, what, what always comes up for me and definitely did in the book was that my, my spiritual path has taught me that I needed to pass through all of these different experiences in my life. Um, as a pro- professional musician, as a, a touring artist, a songwriter, a father, and, you know, I have the blessing and the opportunity to integrate these in my work in service of other people. So you better believe that I will pull out any tool in the toolbox at any moment in order to help people take the medicine. Yeah. It's, and it's tough. And I'm always on, unco- it's, it's perpetual discomfort for me. It's never like people think that I'm always extroverted and it's a piece of cake. No, I'm, I'm mortified typically <laughs> as mortified as you would be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I was writing about one of our teammates yesterday who is an Enneagram seven. Um, and I cut the line because it was a, it was an errant line, but I was like the, you know, the thing you have to know about Enneagram sevens yeah. is underneath the tiggerish way they show up, they can be deeply insecure and perfectionist at the same time. <laughs> right. Yeah, and right. so all that bounciness is, it can sometimes be a huge cloak <laughs> against their high anxiety. Right. Uh, and, yeah. and people just don't understand that sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I, I talked to Susan Piver about this all the time. She, I consider her my Enneagram teacher. You know, she helped me to say the way I knew I was a seven was because I thought I was every previous number around the wheel until she got to seven. I was like, oh, I'm definitely a one, definitely a two, definitely a five, you know. But the sevens, they our hard drive spins at such a high rate because we're like the highest of the mind types. I didn't say we're the smartest, but by far, not not by a long shot. But our our hard drive spins, and that is anxiety producing. That's why meditation instilling practice, I believe, is so key to the integration of a seven. And then we go to five, which is just all about structure. You know, so so writing the book was one of the hardest structures and probably the best structure I could have s- surrendered into during the pandemic. Yeah, so that's interesting, and it, it sort of leads to a question I was going to ask. Didn't know we would get here this way, um, but when you commit to a big project like this, especially a writing project, especially a book project, yeah, there's a way in which you have to like you know rope yourself to the mast and stick with it. Um, and different people, different personality types, different people have different challenges with that. Um, and so what I want to talk about before we get into too much of the substance of the book is, um, how was that process for you? How did you struggle with it? How did it free you? Um, just tell me a story about that. Yeah, I, I think because I try to approach everything as part of my spiritual journey, it was surrendering to the enormity of it that seems to be the recurring theme, you know? So, so tying myself to any post is not how I would respond well. Like I would rip it out of the ground and run away with it by any means necessary, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, some, something I try to coach my daughter on, who's a professional musician now, is is the patience, the infinite patience it takes to wrestle a song into shape. I mean, it's like three-dimensional puzzle solving, you know? And, um, and I, I had experience with that, and the book was just a much larger version of that structure. And I, so I, so I kind of knew the joy that was waiting on the other side of that surrender. 
And then every single day in different ways, it was, how do I show up and do this, you know, each day? Yeah. But and, I, I, I love, I really love the creative process. Like I'm, I'm truly obsessed with it. I love movies about it. I love the makings of records and I love the making of a book. Yeah. Um, let's talk about what you needed to do to create space, to create this book. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, I, I cycled down my coaching practice considerably. So you and I got back from uh, Costa Rica together around March 1st. The world shut down on March, Friday the 13th is what I remember. And, and nobody was back in school on that following Monday. And so the world changed dramatically. If our, if our event would have been one week later, it wouldn't have happened. You know, and it was that dramatic. So I, I, I recognize this opportunity is, is kind of a door opening that something new was emerging. And I would squander the opportunity if I just stayed busy and stayed clinging to every client and didn't do something substantial with the time. So I saw the opportunity for starters, but then I, I consciously said no to some, I pulled out of a launch that I already did. I called people back that I, I refunded money and said, we're not going to do this. And I started getting really quiet. I let go of some contractors. It was a, a lot of hard decisions. And I started laying the groundwork to make the much larger commitment. You know, And I kept telling Gail, I'm like, God, I'm running out of excuses. I think this is really the time to do this. Like I just had this talk with Charlie and hear that it's happening, you know, and I'm like, oh crap, you know? And of course, like we, we resist the thing we fear all the time, you know, like the fear of that large of a commitment. What does it mean? What if I start getting really busy again while I'm doing this thing? And, and one by one, I just started making commitments to other people. You know, Trina at page two books was, has been such an instrumental partner for me because I, I sent her just a snippet of what I was thinking. And she immediately got back and said, this is exciting. You know, like there, I can't think of a lot of books that try to straddle business and spirituality. It's a, bold new territory. So I thought, okay, this is, this is what needs to happen. And, and, you know, and then was double down, doubling down on my, my self-care stuff like med meditation and, you know, but, but also because of the pandemic year was so weird, dude, it was like all of our structures just kind of turned to liquid, you know, like so many of the things that I had in place for years that were so regimented and disciplined just became this like amorphous, blur because they had to, like I had three kids at home that we were kind of homeschooling, you know, like there was a lot of the, the walls were coming down. So I, it was somewhere between like sticking to some of my stilling practices, but also then allowing a lot of things just to get kind of messy and fluid for a while. So what I hear is that it's a mix of both the best time to be doing this project and the worst time to be doing this project. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, cause there was no guarantee. I mean, all the executives I was coaching were like, how do I let go of 400 people tomorrow because of this or that? Like, so I was getting all these like real scarcity triggers happening, you know, and thinking like, whoa, maybe my business will crater at the same time, you know? So it truly was a leap of faith. It was a hard time. And, and a lot of the earlier messages was like, yeah, this is a terrible time to be doing this. You should be making the money while you can before you die of starvation in the fall or something. It was crazy. Yeah, there was a lot of Van Down by the River vibe, right? In, like, <laughs> you know, March 13th happened, you know, Friday the 13th. And it's like, we're all going to be in a Van Down by the River. And I'm like, that can't be true, right? Um, and, yeah. but yeah, I, and I can say as an executive coach, we know that when our clients are starting to think about let people letting people go, we're probably on the chopping block too. 
Right. Oh God, what's the first thing you let go of your, your coach, your, your investment in yourself, you know, whatever. And, and I was, I was truly grateful. All my clients held, you know, a couple of them we needed to complete for whatever reason, but it wasn't because of money or fear. It was the, the natural thing. So yeah, it was, it was one of these weird things. The more I leaned into it, the more God or whatever that benevolent force provided just enough to get by and to fu- give me the time to do it. Yeah. So out the gate, the book is called permission to glow. And as I've described, as I've heard other people talk about the book, they've stumbled over whether it's permission to shine or permission to glow. Yeah, you're um, talking about Todd Satterston. <laughs> that's one person, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I've had other people, right? Where I've been like, is it, they forget whether it's shine or glow. So tell us a story about why it's glow and not shine. Yeah, I love this question. And it, and it turned out to be a very deliberate choice that was kind of beyond me. Um, so Todd Satterson, you introduced me to him. Uh, to me, uh, he is kind of like my book publishing guru. Like he is so brilliant and so seasoned and and, and it actually literally helped me discover the the subtitle, which is a spiritual guide to epic leadership, you know. And when I had that, it was like, oh my God, I know what it is. But permission to glow, you know, shine felt more like this 80s notion of personal development. And, and by, by that, I mean, everything in the 80s was all about achievement, which there's nothing wrong with this, by the way. Like getting stuff done is freaking great. But what I, what I always butted up against with in my own journey was like where, where personal development ends, like it, it's so much about the self. It's about, it's personal. It's like about me and maximizing what I can do. And I thought that that shine thing was like, watch me shine. Like that, that book's been written a million times by a million people given a million expletives around it. And permission to glow was like a low simmer. It was like a pilot light that you keep burning from childhood. It was like, it was like the the audacity to believe. And sometimes we glow bright, like a, like a crack of lightning. And, and, and truly it started out as, you know, shortening the third permission, permission to glow in the dark. And so I wanted people to receive the invitation to glow at like a, a low pilot light type of burn, but also the flash of lightning. And glow seemed to capture that a little bit more than, and, and glow also has a direct relationship to the darkness, I believe, which is there, there, there's like a, a sexy, you know, aura around a glow versus a, a shine is this like, you know, bright, vibrant, and there's nothing, you know, a shine's a beautiful thing, but a glow just had a lot more vibe to me. Yeah. When I read it and I was thinking through it myself, glow made much more sense. It might be too much physics here, but it feels like shine is reflecting light off of you. Exactly. Yes. Right. Um, whereas glowing is coming from internal from within right. you, yeah. From within you. So, I mean, I, though you, you, though your your narrative there was about it not coming from you. For me, I was like, you know, it's hard to shine in the dark when there's no one else around you. <laughs> there's no other light source. Gosh, and and how often are we confronted with that? You know, feat of strength. You know, the audacity to to try to find that within us, right? But uh, you know, so so many funny like serendipity things have happened from, from around the word glow. Like even recently, some, somebody dug up this like ridiculous uh, ninth grade yearbook photo of me with a permed mullet. And I'm probably going to include it in the book because it's just too funny not to, but all my, like 
three of my friends commented on it when it was like breaking Facebook, you know, my embarrassment in, in broad daylight. And and they referenced Soul Glow, which is like this reference to a 1980s movie with Eddie Murphy coming to America. There's like this commercial for Soul Glow. And and then I started thinking about, well, this great yoga brand, Yoga Glow Studios, which produces online yoga learning. And there is some interesting connection between glow and yoga. And the people that that practice yoga or who are willing to you know create union with themselves and spirit, they do have this glow. And on my best days of work, people have reflected that back to me. Like, where is that coming from? What is that battery? Whatever. And I, I think it's yoga, you know, and at the heart of the book is yoga. Absolutely. So for permissions, um, you're the author here, so I'm gonna let you walk us through it rather than me trying to stumble over that. So what are the four permissions first? And then I have a few follow on questions. Yeah, sure. So we'll go in sequential order. Uh, they're, they're not, they don't have to be a tackled in sequential order. If you tackle any of the, any and all of the four, you're going to do more than fine. But, um, I start with the permission one permission to chill and that's to just pause and to be with what is, um, the best practice that supports that obviously is a meditation practice. I've been a meditation teacher for years. I've been uh, practicing meditation for about 15 years. And the more I'm willing to pause and stop, and the more my clients are willing to pause and stop, the more willing or the more able they are to see and interpret what comes up in permission two, which is permission to feel all the feels. And so I, th- I think a permission one is to, to be at peace with what, with whatever rises in the moment to test us. That requires a pause. Like, what the hell is this? Is this bad? Is it good? You know, ver- ver- the, the, the space between stimulus and response that's usually attributed to Viktor Frankl. It's kind of the jury's out on who actually came up with that. But permission to feel all the feels is more about the, the, the ability to hear what our feelings are telling us rather than just the blanket stamp of it's all bad. You know, I'm wrong. It's bad. You know, I'm a messy human or I'm weak. Um, we didn't get a lot of tools to feel our feels. So that's permission too. And, uh, and, and then as I started getting deeper into the, into perceiving what that is, I think it's really to set us up for the t- intuition that arises from that, that if we're willing to feel the feelings and then dig deeper into the root emotions that those are attached to, then we can start doing this proactive feeling state, which is kind of like that visceral priming through feeling where we could intuit towards the thing we want to create, feel it in advance. And, and that felt really exciting to me. And that's what I used. I, I, I dusted off the unicorn symbology to, to symbolize the, uh, the rare leader who's willing to feel all their feels and to let others in on that journey. Um, all of my breakthroughs personally, by the way, are in that permission. Uh, it's the one that I fight the hardest against is what my coach just like takes a sledgehammer and a ninja sword to me about is, is that inability. I, I don't want to say inability, but, the sometimes unwillingness to feel those feelings, um, and all the goodness on the other side of it. Uh, three is, is the, was the first one that I came up with. And it's usually the reason why people hire us to coach, right? Permission to glow in the dark, which is, you know, full expression with witnesses, getting paid to be you, unleashing your signature magic on the world, um, and doing it because of the, or despite the ever-present fear. Like, let's be honest, the darkness is always there. And what I didn't have before I wrote the book was I thought it was just like, screw you guys, I'm going to be me. It's like, no, I'm going to be me, even though I'm terrified most of the time doing it. And that's what my, my editor really leaned on me to get right about that, that chapter was the, the darkness, like own the darkness. 
And then the fourth permission arrived later, which is it's, it feels kind of utopian and impossible considering our current circumstances, but it's to, to partner with and to surrender into the support of people who have done the earlier work of the first three permissions to, um, to transcend competition for collaboration, to uplift the entirety of our human family. And, and I can't think of any other objective that a divine creator would want for us other than that, to set aside our petty crap and to help one another out, to think of others first. And I truly think the pandemic was sent as one of those teachers, you know, like you might want to think of other people first sometimes. So, so that, that's a kind of a primer on the, on the four permissions. Yeah. I'm with any, DeFranco on this one about the she you know her thing is about it's like the ultimate feminist guide right or um yeah. actually you know the blurb better so what was her blurb on this one yeah so ani ani's been my my shiro all caps since i was a kid you know she's a, an incredible songwriter and activist and feminist she'll like be one of the preeminent feminists of her generation she already is but she said when, when she after she read it she said it was a deeply feminist manifesto and that it was about much more than just leadership. And, and I agree, like, and, and I think what she picked up on is that it, again, in yoga and Hinduism, there's not only God, the omniscient father, like the masculine, you know, what, what we typically think is a white dude in robes, like throwing lightning bolts at people. Um, there's also the divine feminine aspect, which is divine mother. And I think that divine mother aspect really came through in the writing and in the permissions, because I think that's what's being asked from us um, as a human species is like, you know, the masculine's got us this far. It's been amazing. And we need to allow women in leadership to step forward. We need to allow these, this softer, more conscious side of male leadership to emerge. And for better, or for worse, that's been my work is to try to hammer that out of dudes. <laughs> yeah. I have a few, I need to send you. Um, that's not a joke. Um, but what, here's what gets me about this. The formulation that I know you, I know it's not necessarily a sequential set of steps, like step one, yeah. two, step three, step right. four. It can go that way, and that's useful for some people. Yeah. Um, but the radicalness of them are actually in inverse order, in the sense of oh. it's a lot. There's much more about there about us glowing and shining together, right? Yeah. Right. Um, but when you think about it, in our society. Permission to chill radical is really like <laughs> softly radical, right? Oh, oh God. Like that. That's why I, if I would have started with the fourth permission, it would have been so Shangri-La and utopian right out of the gate. People would be like next, because it's like, we're not there yet, you know, but just to even, I, I made the purpose of the book peace, because if I could give my clients one thing that I think we all clamor for is any moment of peace. I think we all want to find and discover our vocation and our work so we could be at peace with what we spend so many hours doing every single day. And so I had to start with that, that first permission, but yeah, like we will resist being silent with ourselves like that could be the most radical permission in the, in American culture, I think. Yeah. And then the feel all the feels second radicalness, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, no, seriously. Like when we look at right. the, you know, the dominance of toxic positivity, where like when you go yes. to work, you can't feel all the other feels. It just has to be this one thing. Right. And we have to be careful as coaches, right? Because we can market in that, you know, um, if we're not careful, yeah. if we're not Gosh, careful. 
you know, when you met me, I was working at Centro and we were winning a lot of awards for culture. And I was so, I'm so proud of that phase of my career. And I was really blessed to have them be the last people I'll ever work for full time. Um, but I, I was probably the biggest champion of, of toxic positivity without knowing it because I, I wasn't anywhere in the vicinity yet of my journey of like feeling my feels. I was just like, Hey, let's just, you know, like make it all awesome. Like everything is awesome, you know, and sevens are really good at ratcheting that for people. And what I started realizing towards the end of it was that our culture was winning awards, but we were really bad at being authentic with what's hard and what's just wrong and painful. And it was becoming a very homogenized frat house at times kind of a vibe. I mean, it's advertising in America. Um, so, so yeah, I hear you toxic. I, that was a real struggle in the book was to make, to really gut check myself at every step to not be spiritually bypassing. Um, because it can, it can feel jarring to, to ratchet yourself up to those vibrational states of just even getting a glimpse of what could be possible. The first time Ani DeFranco said to me, she said, well, what if, what if there's just glowing in the light without the darkness? I'm like, Oh my God, I can't even, I I'm not there yet, you know? And then in, um, in, in chiseling it out and writing it and, and trying to give the reader a visceral feel of what it could be. Like part of the writing of the book was try to give people, uh, it's not my job to give people permission, but I could hopefully try to write it in a way that gives people a feel for what it could be like to, to taste it. And, um, but I love your idea of, you know, I think of them as like ascending gates to claiming your own power, but, but an inverse framing on that could be radical to consider too you know, because everything is done in service of the collective in service of upliftment. And when you hit your, when you hit your personal development to the greater good, it transcends and becomes spiritual development, you know? And I, I think that that's a beautiful, it's almost, I almost picture like a, um, a telescope being flipped over, you know, how would that, how would we walk through those in verse? So maybe I'll rewrite the book now, Charlie. Thanks a lot. Hey, you should have talked to me up front. No, I'm joking. <laughs> totally. Um, no, it was just, you know, as I've been, I've had the privilege of, again, of thinking about this for longer than a year right now and yeah. where we are now. So I'm like, how do all these work together? Um, and folks in the Academy know that for the last year, I've been like, okay, at some point we're going to have Casey on because he's going to have to do this. Cause if I keep talking and teaching about this, then like, it's going to be super awkward at a certain point. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. and I say that with <laughs> all, um, all gratitude and hat tipping because it's really a powerful framework. Right. But as I've been thinking about it over this last, you know, year, 18 months and longer, you know, it really does remind me um, of one of my favorite lines from the Tao Te Ching. And so some of y'all pulled out your bingo card for that one. Um, it's mm. a running joke in our community, but um, yeah. that, that line is, um, and I'm going to give the feminine version of it is um, she who conquers the world. I count as strong. She who wow. conquers herself. I count as truly powerful. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, in my tradition, Paramahansa Yogananda was a true, truly enlightened guru. He wrote autobiography of a yogi. And to this day, the devotees on the path, they call him master, not because he's the master over us is because he's the master of himself, mm -hmm. you know, and the master of themselves, they deserve the title master. You know, they, they would never power trip over anybody. You know, they are humble to the end. Um, but yeah, that's a beautiful quote. I mean, one of the things I, I remember most about you really early on when I met you and, and you're, and you're younger than me. So I was totally intimidated, of course, was that you were barefoot. You're standing in the center of the room and the good life project emerged and you had a lot of powerful coaches and executive people around you. And you were just really 
a philosopher through and through. You talked about your your favorite, you know, time spent being like whiteboarding frameworks, you know, and that you think in frameworks. And I'm I'm a Virgo, so Vir- Virgos are kind of predisposed to frameworks, and I, I I'm the same way. And this the way this framework emerged for me over time, it was like the slowest drip of molasses. It wasn't like all appear at once. It was like I had to discover them and unearth them and dust them off and then figure out what they mean. And it's going to take me many more books to do that, you know, but I, I do love that it's been, the language has been sticky for you and and helps you look through that lens with your, with your clients. It's an honor. And I I can't wait to figure out ways to, to play together again around it. Yeah. Um, well, Angela's working on that in the Academy, so I'm super excited. That's happening. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super excited about them. Finally. Um, literally the day after the book is published, I'm, I'm teaching in the Academy. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. So I'm happy to support you that way. And also to make sure that you, we have something I can link back to. So it's not just, you know, I have to start paying your royalties on things. Um, (laughs) you mentioned that the second one, and the second permission, um, permission to fill all the fields is the one you struggle the most with. Personally, yeah. Yeah. And I found that one actually, I was I was anticipating you'd say the first. Mm. Um, so tell me a little bit more about that. Because again, I, I... Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Well, like in terms of both. Um, so an Enneagram 7 integrates to 5. And, and when we integrate to 5 at our best, we surrender into structure. The virtue we pursue is sobriety. So, you know, I kicked drinks about 10 years ago, but meditation supports my sobriety or seeing the world as it is, you know? So that one, that one I I was able to surrender into many years ago and it wasn't an easy, it took me 12 years to figure out how to have, have a habit. And now I teach others to do it. Um, but the feel of the feels, it's kind of the new or the final frontier for me in some ways is because, and again, because we're on the, I'm on the mind type of um, that my intelligence center is my mind as a seven, I would kill to be on the heart type, you know, like twos, threes, fours. I'm like, Oh, to live in the heart, you know, that'd be amazing. And people I think experience me as a loving person, but um, you use the word mercurial. I'm way more like a cat than I am like a golden retriever. Like my persona is golden retriever, but I'm more like stay the hell away. I'll come when, when I need you, you know? Um, So you know, letting people in, letting people into my process, crying in front of my kids, um, allowing them to see the struggle and the the victory of things is, yeah, that's hard for me to do. It's, and it's also the most rewarding. I'm curious, how did you make sure, or at least not get yourself into the position to where meditation became your new addiction? Oh, it totally has at different points, you know, and that's where I need to relax my approach on things. Um, you know, that, that's where, you know, addictive tendencies become incredibly powerful tools when you're forming new habits, you know what I mean? Uh, and there's, there's some incredible books about, you know, drug addicts that become ultra marathoners for that reason. There's chasing another dope, you know, dopamine hit. Um, but um, it has at times, I would tell you, but also meditation practice is, is the foundation of, of the yoga I study. And it, it, so it truly is like the cathedral I try to spend time in each day. Um, and, and also like sh- performatively sharing your emotions for dramatic effect or whatever, that, that could easily be its own. That All this stuff could get co-opted by the ego, you know, especially if you're a lifelong performer as I am. Um, 
and but but to authentically see them for what they are and let them inform you i mean that's the one two punch of permission one and two is that you can see things as they are and honor them and hopefully strip away some of that performative stuff so so yeah addiction comes up i mean and then permission three to glow in the dark i mean who who couldn't get addicted to you know stage lights and accolades and you know people bearing witness to your greatness all that i mean we see it on social media every single day um and you know and that's that was a big breakthrough in the book and i say it going into the fourth chapter on the fourth permission was that the there, there's like a rinse repeat monotony that comes from chill feel glow that could get co-opted by the ego because it's all in service of self and that's that personal development kind of loop versus if you if you make it in service of everything else is in service of all of us then it breaks that pattern so it becomes chill feel glow serve and that felt more congruent spiritually and also lofty and ambitious and who knows if we'll all ever get there you know yeah, you have in the book a sub permission. Um, it didn't. It didn't make the top four. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I knew you'd like that it's one. Right it's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, what is that sub permission? I'm gonna let you say. Yeah, it. My, my, yeah. My my dad, my dad, and most dads don't give it to their kids. It's permission to suck. Yeah. Um, so I get, I did it jokingly in the final chapter, which is the mechanics of compassionate change. These are the seven things that. I, I want people to do that, that keep a lot of self-compassion in the process. Cause let's face it, creating change in your life is a brutal process. And that's why there's lots of sugar in the book to help the medicine go down. Cause it is hard. But, and one of those things is like permission to suck. It's like, start small and just assume that you're going to cross like my, my favorite line that made me laugh when I was reading the, like the final edit of it is like crossing the desert of conscious incompetence is like a nude wind sprint through the cold cafeteria of personal growth. It's like, cause we're not willing to suck. We'd ra- we'd rather not start than suck for five minutes or five years, or, you know, in my case, 15 years of becoming a meditation teacher and then a coach and then an author. Right. So it's like, because I was willing and able to suck publicly for a while, I, I started getting, you know, marginally competent at some point. And, and, and Michael Bungay Stanier said the same thing to me. He's like, I was willing to suck as a facilitator for decades and be the worst. All the feedback was terrible became, before he became, eventually became the Jedi we know as MBS. You know? Yeah. You know, it's, you know, my take on that is anything worth doing well is worth doing badly at the beginning. Yeah. Right. Right. Just because we think that we have to start on the gate. And in the trick with mastery, uh, you know, self-mastery, and I've got some troublesome, you know, feelings about the word mastery in the moment, yeah. but like, you know, self-sovereignties, you know, that skill that we're talking about there is we think that mastery in one domain automatically transfers over into another. Yep. Right. <laughs> so it's like, I'm a great ex. So therefore the next thing I try, I should be great. And it's like, actually, no, that's a completely different thing. Yeah. Um, and so it's just that, that willingness to, um, to just suck at the beginning. And, you know, um, this is where I love, like Josh Kaufman's got the book of the first 20 hours I've taken, yeah. like I do most people's books taken in a completely different direction. And I'm like, how much you just give yourselves 20 hours that from the begin- very beginning of just being terrible at something. Yeah. Right. Before you judge whether you're going to be good at it or not, just be terrible. Or, right? or before you even discover if you like to even do the thing or not, like you think you yeah. might, 
Yeah. Sucking is not, it's not fun for anybody, but it's, everybody had to start at the same place. Like everybody sucked for a while, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I have um, personally, and I think I've written about this. I have written about this. Um, I have what I call the new project cocoon. And it's like, whenever I take on a new project that's different, like there's just a period of time where I get to be as mad, as frustrated, as uncomfortable, as gripey about it as possible, but it means nothing about whether I should continue doing it or not. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. Because it's just change. Yeah. And me not being good at something and me having to figure something out and me being like most people that sit in creative tension between consistency and sort of high performance and mastery and novelty. And when we really look at so much of our spiritual growth being honoring and leaning into some of these tensions, it's just like, yeah, I'm going through this thing that's that may be worth doing. Yeah. In this moment, it's uncomfortable. It's hard. I don't know what I'm doing. Most people know me as the guy who knows what I'm doing. So I can't tell anybody like all that sort of jazz. But like, you know what? Three weeks, a month, just do it and see what happens. Right. And then at the other end of that, if I'm like, oh, it's actually not that bad, then I know that it can do you. But if I know after about a month, maybe three, it's like, hmm, this is probably out of alignment with something that I value somewhere and I need to figure that out. It's not just me being gripey because the chair moved three inches to the left, you know? Well, it's what I hear in that, you know, from a coaching perspective, what I'm always looking for is like, we think it's the thing that we want to create, but it's not, it's our relationship to the thing. What you just described is a healthy relationship to the thing, not being attached to it, ever working out, you know, being gentle with yourself when you're a gripey, stompy, you know, D to everyone around you. That's how I am when I'm creating new change. You know, I'm not the most pleasant person. Um, and being willing to stick it out, like that's that pilot light of a glow where, where it's like, okay, you know, what's a little bit more gas look like here and there and pushing through. And then, you know, when we add on that self-compassion and just stay in the game, eventually the change takes root. I mean, you're, you know, a walking case study in this and uh, all my clients that succeed in doing the thing, just maintain and nurture that healthy relationship. But the, the healthy relationship does not look like, you know, success or bust or I'm going to look amazing the first week. I mean, good luck with that. Yeah. I mean, and that's that discernment between knowing when the feelings are saying something important. Right. And knowing when they're just feelings. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole premise of the, the chapter one or the first permission to, to chill is to strengthen that muscle of discernment, you know, like in the serenity prayer, the wisdom to know the difference. And if you can navigate by that and you just know, like, you know, that this serves me and this doesn't, or your body's telling you, or your, you know, the drama in your life is telling you if it's working or not, you're doing so much better than most. If you could just even hear that voice. So when you write the type of book that you wrote here, um, uh Oh, <laughs> It's near impossible for it to start working on you in a different way. Um, So looking at Casey now, post writing the book, talking about the book, what evolution with the permissions are you currently growing through? Wow. It's a beautiful question. I mean, I've started to realize that the, the permissions are kind of like yoga and that it's like a vine that just keeps propagating throughout your life and it blooms and it changes and it changes you and it steers you down some wild paths you never would have thought. Um, to, to, con- to think about 
that my job description on LinkedIn now is what the subtitle of the book is, A Spiritual Guide to Epic Leadership. Is that the subtitle of my book or is that my job title? I don't know. And the permissions made that okay to even entertain that radical notion. Who, who am I to bring spirit into corporate spaces? I don't know, but I guess it's my work to find out. The permissions have forced me to surrender so much discomfort on, on a daily basis uh, in every coaching client conversation to, to letting spirit in the room and be, I, I, I truly believe leadership and entrepreneurship is a spiritual conversation now. I didn't know that if I believed that before I sat down and did the work. Um, so yeah, other than that, nothing's much has changed. <laughs> um, yeah. What's the most unexpected challenge you're currently facing? Oh man. It, it's that meme of, um, it's like a quote from God that says, nah, bigger. It's like a meme that, you know, th- there's so much opportunity and abundance, um, showing up that, um, you know, just, just navigating it, how to team up for it. Um, allowing myself the fourth permission, not surrendering into those frenemies that I talk about, like dark star, which is like, I refuse to receive any and all assistance. That was my prior MO. Cause I just assumed I could do it better than anybody else. And it's, it's just so stupid and limiting. Uh, so, so yeah, I remember that. Casey. Yeah. 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 I, th- that's the, I got this. Like I, I joke about it. Like I got this. It's like a total 1980s energy versus like, we got this, we got, this is infinitely powerful and unlimited. Uh, so, so yeah, I think that that challenge is ever present, you know, capacity issues in my own business and my own leadership and just allowing in more of what spirit has in store. Um, it's, it's a beautiful, it's exhilarating and it's also terrifying at times. Yeah. I'm going to steer us back into, um, one direction I forgot to ask us previously. Um, You've been mentioning how hard it is to weave spirituality into, you know, corporate ways of working and being. Yeah. And that's a story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's my story at the moment. Yeah. Um, I I think there there are some challenges. There are at least some pervasive stories that we, um, many of us agree are true. Yeah. Right. Whether or not they're actually true. That's a whole nother matter. Yeah. so I'm thinking, okay, I'm a leader in corporate America and I like the idea of this and I need a small start mm-hmm. um, without being able to say it depends, which is what we coaches and, and consultants love to say. Yeah. Um, what would be the default place where you'd suggest someone start? If they don't have it, create a daily meditation habit. You know, just the ability to listen to, to know that you're listening to yourself and not somebody else's script. I think that's the foundation of conscious leadership. Um, you know, and the reason I said it, you know, that was my story is I came from the HR side before I went out on my own and, and you have to do a lot of framing to not, you know, you're not told not to bring the God into the conversation at work, but it is really squeezed out of, it's why corporations call meditation, mindfulness or presencing, whatever they're softening into. And so I'm kind of throwing a flag in the ground saying, let's call it what it is. You know, conscious leadership is a spiritual conversation, I believe. Um, So a lot of my clients, they don't know, they don't know that I even use this language. This will be the first kind of opening the kimono for them of like, this is what's really going on under the hood. And that's vulnerable and crazy making for me. But um, like I say, like God doesn't care what we call it. Um, I would just encourage people to take the first step of just hitting the pause button. And then our journey starts from there. And, and most of my clients have been doing that for years with me 
interesting things unfold. That's why we always start on day one of the retreats with just a whole day of just deep chill. Is because con- connection, true connection to self, to others, to all that is, to spirit, comes from that that willingness to be still. Yeah. So here's your opportunity to um, take the hard out of starting a meditation practice because I know what a lot of people think it has to be. Yeah. Right. Um, so tell us a little bit more about how we can ease into that. Yeah. Well, I love the word ease. Um, let's create a game we can win. You know what I mean? Um, so guided meditation is like your dad holding the two wheeler bike seat on the cul-de-sac unguided is riding that two wheeler up the on-ramp of the highway or, you know, riding it across the world. So my goal is to get people to 15 minutes a day unguided within 30 days, seven days a week, no excuses. And what works with that. And I, I had a conversation with the conversation with Greg Berg yesterday on his podcast. And he came to camp five years ago, maybe seven years ago, I helped him create the meditation habit. The dude, I don't think has missed a day. It's, it's something crazy. It's like thousands of days. And the, the way we do that is to make it a game we will win. What's the minimum amount we could show up every day? Because we're only after the consistency anyway. So at first, talk about permission to suck, five minutes a day. We're going to do it five minutes a day, seven days a week, no excuses. Will it be terrible? Will you just be sitting there listening to yourself thing? Oh, totally. <laughs> totally. And even after you've been doing it for 10 years, it'll still happen. So seven days a week, just doing five minutes a day, same time every day if you can. Um, then the second, um, the second week and beyond for a little while is 10 minutes a day, like doubling it, lingering on in those. And I go into the book about breaking this down, whether it's five minutes or five hours into three different phases getting our attention, bringing our attention back, and then directing our attention. Directing our attention at the end of every session is this little reward we give ourselves to practice the fourth permission, to wish wish somebody love and kindness, to think about somebody other than ourselves, to, to, to give ourselves love and gratitude if we choose to do so at that time, to use our clear mind that we created to give ourselves love and compassion. It's a, it's a beautiful little reward. And then you do that before a coffee and then you give yourself the real reward of like, oh, now I could have coffee. You don't want to drink coffee and then try to meditate and fast forward. It doesn't work. I've tried it. Um, and then by the end of the, you know, the 30 days and, may, and usually it takes less than this for most people is to get up to 15 minutes and 15 minutes. If you're using that framework of getting your own attention, you're spending two to three minutes, just doing some four, seven, eight breathing, getting your own, slowing your thoughts. The 80% of that time is bringing the attention back to a mantra, something like, this is what it feels like to be free, or I am the sky watching all weather move through me. I am the sky watching all weather move through me. You do that. And then at the the end of that time, you notice that stillness, something changed. And, and what I hope people notice is the compounding return on, on investment of their time, that they are a more gracious person. They're a more grateful person. They're making better choices at the supermarket to maybe buy a little less alcohol or not buy the pack of smokes. They're, that, that consistent meditation practice starts weeding out some of the undesirable habits. So, so yeah, I've never had it so consistent. Uh, I've never had to so concisely lay out the framework for creating a habit of meditation as I did in the book. It's in that permission to chill chapter because my, my busy people don't have time to try a lot of things. They need to get down to it. Yeah. And thanks for both talking about us on the podcast, but also I was preempting so many of the high achievers out there that 
I know they hear meditation like, oh, man, that sounds like a massive project. And, you know, I'm going to have to sit for an hour and like there's certain ways <laughs> to funny, do it, right. like all the things. Yeah, right. right. Um, because apparently our, our high achievers, the first thing they do is create a really damn near impossible scenario and then decide they can't do that. What's a game we right? will lose? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's a game that because only the hard games matter. Right. Um, and it's like, no, we can ease into this. Well, right? and I file, I've told, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you file yourself as the same, but like, I love being an achiever. I've always, you know, identified as such, but I realized that usually that unattainable goal, it's like marathon training. If I run out the door the first day and run 10 miles, I'll be so hurt that I'll use that to judge myself as a terrible runner and a weakling or whatever. So like I say, game, we can win. And, you know, five minutes a day, that, that consistency, uh, like I love the, and I forgot the, um, I forgot the Latin term for this, but, the, but the water, the drip of water that eventually goes through the slab of granite, I use it in the mm-hmm. book, but that consistency thing, if you're only after minimum consistency, but relentless consistency, you will create that habit and you will get up to an hour a day or eight, four hours a day, whatever. There's no limit, but in the beginning, you just have to be very gentle and consistent. Alrighty. So as the guest to today's on today's podcast, you get to leave our um, listeners with a challenge or an invitation, um, or I'm going to tailor it a little bit, a permission. Mm. Right. Yeah. So um, as today's guest, what would you like to invite, challenge, or prompt yeah. a permission for? Well, I would have to start with permission three, which is what I think we all crave for and what our soul wants from us is to discover what we're here for. So look around at the ever-present pervasive fear everywhere, how it informs us, how it informs you, how it holds you back or pushes you forward into certain directions. And ask yourself this question, what would it take for you to defiantly glow in that darkness? no matter what you, you decide the vibrancy, you decide the heat, you decide how much light, but what will it take for you to defiantly glow in that darkness? Wonderful. Casey, thanks so much for joining me. Um, I'm going to let you go do the next thing, which I hope is chill. Um, but again, wonderful conversation. Uh, thanks so much, brother. It's always a pleasure. And thanks for the beautiful questions. You're, you're amazing. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Casey. Think about all the darkness around. Think about those fears. Think about the worries. Think about the concerns. What can you do to amidst all of that still glow? I'm pausing to let you think about it. It's not can you, it's what can you do? Until next time, stand tall, start finishing, and glow. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.